0: welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're travelling back to the medieval kingdom of Francia with Dr. Christian Coymans, Christian is an expert on Viking and early medieval history, and he answered your questions on everything to do with the Franks and the Frankish world. Our content director, David Musgrove, is today's host, and he began by asking Christian, who exactly were the Franks?
2: Okay, so uh, on our latest Everything You Want to Know podcast, we are looking at the Franks and the Frankish world, which is a big topic, but we've got a, a great chap to help us out. Uh, so Christian, how are you doing? Are you well today?
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing
2: great. Thanks for having me. Good. And you're ready to charge in and cover a lot of ground for us?
3: Absolutely. Let's do it.
2: Okay. Right. So the first question that we've got, uh, a popular uh, social media question is, who were the Franks?
3: Yeah, that that seems like it might be a pretty straightforward question, but it's actually, it's actually quite a tough one to answer. Um, because The Franks have been so many different things to to different people at at different points in time. Um, But in the most basic sense, we can say that the Franks were a group of Germanic peoples who during and following the decline of the Western Roman Empire uh, managed to carve out this extensive territory for themselves across the European mainland, um, which would have kept growing in size and influence over the course uh, of the early medieval period and and which would eventually turn into uh one of the most um if not the most powerful uh political force in the medieval west. So the story of the Franks as a people is is one that takes place over many centuries. Um, it covers countless uh, regions and rulers and interactions and, and 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 conflicts. Uh and in a way that story starts on the periphery beyond you know the roman borders of the northwest of northwestern europe only to then gradually find its way into the very highest echelons of of political power throughout uh much of the continent but unfortunately that story is not always this this simple narrative that we can just follow from a to b many aspects uh, of the origins of the Franks, uh, their conquests, their political impact, um, even the way they were perceived by themselves and and by others, those all continue to be debated, and, and they have been for many years. But in spite of, of, of all that, there's really no doubt that the rise and the consolidation and, and the eventual decline of, of Frankish rule has been fundamental uh, for the political development of Europe as a whole, not just... You know, during the medieval period itself, but as an ongoing legacy right up to the uh, to the present day. So it's a complicated picture, but hopefully we'll uh, we'll get into it and and uh,
2: and uh, and come up with some of the answers. But when is the first reference to the Franks? That's a question that a lot of people type into their search engines.
3: So the the first references to the Franks as a distinct people where they are identified with that name, Franks, they survive to us from the later 3rd uh, and the early 4th centuries AD. And these are found in the uh, the so-called Latin panegyrics, which are these elaborate speeches uh, written in honor of, of Roman emperors and their uh, their illustrious deeds. Um, and the Franks often feature as an adversary here, um, as, a, as an invading force, uh, which is then dealt with by these, these emperors in question. But already by the 4th century, we start to see uh, the Franks cast in a, in a different light as well. Uh, some of them seem to have joined the Roman army, for example, and, and even managed to work their way up to, to very prestigious positions. Others are also seen to have settled within the borders of, of the empire with permission. So it really wasn't exclusively this, this sort of barbarians at the gate, Narrative, but we are very reliant on on Roman authors for these early centuries. so what what we know about these groups is handed down to us through a Roman lens. Uh, and because of that, it's very difficult to say anything about them with complete certainty um, because we don't know. Whether these depictions reflect the way that that Frankish people would have thought about themselves uh, and, and and their collective identities and their and their organization, so it's not really until this, the early sixth century that we really start to find sources that have that could have been written uh, by the Franks themselves, and and it's by that time that we also start to see a much more sort of unified Frankish kingship uh, come into view,
2: and. Another uh, superficially simple question, but no doubt with quite a complicated answer, another popular search engine query is, where did the Franks come from?
3: Yeah. uh, So to begin with, uh, the the Franks were groups uh, of Germanic peoples living in the low-lying area just beyond uh, the River Rhine, which served as as a border to the Roman Empire. And this sort of roughly corresponds to the region that we uh, today still call the Rhineland in, in Western Germany. But um, like I just mentioned, by the 4th century, we already have indications of, of Frankish peoples having made their way west into the southern low countries. And, and it's that type of expansion that seems to have effectively uh, continued after that. So when we reached the 5th century, the Franks were able to advance on, on northern Gaul, all the way to what is now uh, northern France, and and gradually supplants Roman authority across that that particular region. And it's during that same period that we also really start to see the emergence of a much more uh, unified. Frankish people uh, who were able to to make common cause and to to rally behind uh, a single leader, um, which really manifested itself in the rise and the influence of a specific uh, ruling dynasty known as the uh, Merovingians, who would effectively uh, control the expanding Frankish realm for 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 several centuries after that.
2: Okay, so we're going to come back to the Merovingians in a bit. But uh, one more sort of uh, general question is, what language did the Franks speak? A lot of people ask that of their search engine.
3: Originally, the Franks themselves would have mostly spoken uh, a Germanic language that we uh, call Frankish or Old Frankish sometimes. Now, we don't have a lot of direct evidence for this language, and most of what we know about it has been uh, reconstructed, basically by uh, comparing the features of its related languages and then working our way back. But even very early on, not all Franks uh, would have spoken the exact same language. You know, it's 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 very much like you know the English of today. Um, it would have been made up of various different dialects and and, and accents which would have been mutually intelligible to begin with, but gradually over the centuries uh, would have continued to evolve and and, and diverge as the Franks began to expand their influence. Uh, So the the Dutch language, for example, is a direct linguistic descendant uh, of Frankish. But I think it's, it's worth pointing out that when the Franks conquered new lands, they didn't necessarily seek to replace whatever language was already being spoken there. Um, The Frankish territories really weren't that sort of monolithic. They were home to to all sorts of different people speaking many different languages, and and Frankish certainly would have have left a mark on them, uh, but it wouldn't become the standard language, per se. Um, You know, take French, for example. Even though French is not a descendant of Frankish, uh, it's not even a Germanic language, it nevertheless contains a very large number of Germanic loanwords, many of which would have been taken from the Frankish language. Uh, For example, the the French word for war is guerre, which comes from the Frankish word veru, which means uh, something like confusion or, or, or disturbance.
2: The, uh, the linguistic aspects of this are fascinating, aren't they? You've, you've, you've set us up very nicely in terms of, of a, a, an early uh, situation here. So let's move into some of our uh, listener questions. Hugh Berkmeyer asks, how did the Franks differ from other Germanic tribes, uh, such as the Saxons?
3: Yeah, uh, thanks for that, uh, Hugh. Uh, so... Uh, the the early Franks are, are very much considered a, a distinct people, and they could presumably be differentiated in in, in multiple different ways. Um, first of all, uh, like I mentioned, they of course had their own language, which would have been different from those spoken by other regional peoples, uh, like the like the Saxons or or the Frisians, for example. It's also suggested that they may have had different styles of, of dress, uh, of hair, and and other uh, types of external characteristics. When it comes to uh, a material culture, it's very difficult to archaeologically distinguish any sort of distinct Frankish identity before we head into the into the Merovingian period. Um, and of course, the problem is is also again. That we're often seeing these people from the perspective of external authors who are thought to have, you know, had quite a lot of difficulty distinguishing between the Franks and the Saxons and the Frisians, for example. And they may have just, you know, lumped all of these different groups together for, for convenience. Um, so we know we, we really need to be you know, quite critical when, when engaging with all of this evidence and, and certainly not take you know, any of it at, at face value.
2: Right, a couple of uh, linked questions here that I think we can ask together. So Richard Smedley wants to know, uh, he, he says there are various ideas about the etymology of the word frank. He wants to know what the latest thinking is. And then uh, Hugh Meyer our, our friend who just asked the previous question, wants to know how much truth there is to the story that they took their name from the Francisca throwing axe. So, uh, so can you take those two together, do you think?
3: Yeah, I, I think I, I, I should be able to. Um yeah, so there, 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 are all sorts of um, theories on the origin of the name Frank, and and I'm afraid it's not really uh, a settled discussion. It's it's something that that in fact even medieval historians themselves seem to have struggled quite a bit with. Many scholars believe that the term is derived from the Germanic adjective Franca, and in that context, it may have meant something like like fierce or or courageous the term has also been traditionally associated with uh, a specific type of weapon like a like a spear or a, or a javelin and it's been suggested that that the name of the people may have had, uh, may have some sort of link to that as well but again that's it's it's disputed then there's the, the idea of the word frank meaning free which we still use in English today in 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 a similar context. So you know when you're frank with someone, you're free and 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 open and and sincere with them. Now that definition is also early medieval, and it does pertain to the Franks uh, as a people, uh, but it seems to have arisen only in later centuries, and 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 it may have referred to the social status that the Franks themselves enjoyed uh, in the societies that 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 they ruled. Uh, the term. Francisca or Francisca that, that Hugh mentions uh, is thought to be derived from the Latin word francus. Uh, so it seems that the weapon, so the, the axe, would have been named for the Franks, not the Franks for the weapon.
2: Okay. So I hope that answers your questions, uh, Hugh and Richard. Um, let's, there's a couple more search engine queries we should get to. Um, you've mentioned Merovingian a couple of times. Uh, do you, can you tell us what the word Merovingian means?
3: Yes. Uh, absolutely. And, 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 and this is, uh, this is, this is great because this is the part where we get to talk about, uh, quinators. So, you know, bear with me here. So. According to a 7th century Frankish chronicle, which is now known as the Chronicle of Fredegar, uh, the Merovingians took their name from one of their 5th century ancestors called Merovech. Now, Merovech himself has a pretty unusual origin story in that he was supposedly the product um, of his mother having been attacked at the seaside by what the chronicler calls uh, a beast of Neptune, like a quinotaur. Now, other than that being some sort of a sea dwelling creature, we really don't know much about what this this quinotaur might be. It's it's traditionally interpreted um as, as being some sort of a half bull, half fish type situation, um, with the name possibly being the result of a of a scribal error and that minotaur is what's actually uh meant. But even that doesn't really make things any easier to interpret. And, and the author is very vague on the details. Uh, we're not even told whether the Quintar, um is really Meroving's father or not. So this has been a source of debate between scholars for a long time. And, and some people have insisted that this is an attempt to invest Merovingian kingship with a kind of sacral or, or supernatural backstory uh, to sort of legitimize uh, their rule. But it could also be something much simpler. Um, in in Frankish, the name Merovech itself is thought to have meant something like "sea and this this legendary story could have simply been made up by later chroniclers to to, to explain the origin of of that particular name.
2: And another uh, popular search engine query is why was the Merovingian dynasty important? Have you got a got a line on that?
3: Uh, why were they important? For numerous reasons. Uh, from, uh, from what we can tell, uh, the Merovingians were the first to unite the Frankish people under a single banner, uh, and under a single ruling family. Um, they were in power for the better part of, uh, something like 300 years. Uh, so from the mid fifth, uh, to the eighth century, Uh, maybe even earlier than the mid-5th century. And they hugely expanded the the Frankish-controlled territories during this period until they eventually included what is now uh, France, the Low Countries, and and large parts of of Germany and, and, and Switzerland. Now, Traditionally, the Merovingian period has gotten this pretty bad rep, and and it's been characterized as this, you know, age of general decline and division and and obscurity in which, you know, nothing much happened, Uh, everyone rolled in the mud, and all, you know, progress just sort of ground to a halt. But this is a view that's been very much increasingly challenged, uh, especially over the, the past half century, with... You know all sorts of new discoveries and, and methodologies, demonstrating that the Merovingian world overall would have been you know anything but stagnant or, or isolated, and, and was instead marked by, by by innovation and by interconnectedness and by uh, trade and, and culture and scholarship. So it's it's really quite far removed from this this tired idea of of Europe in the Dark Ages, which we can you know really quite confidently consign to the bin these days.
2: Okay, let's put the put the Dark Ages in the bin. Um, let's uh, let's let's take a couple more uh, listener questions. Um, Richard Goldstein uh, wants to know um, why did the Franks wind up on top of the largest chunk of the Romanized slice of the continent, and he sort of prefaces that by saying there were several barbarian invasions of Roman Gaul, Italy, and Iberia. So,
3: um, uh, d- can you can you answer Richard's query? That's a great question. Um, thanks, thanks, Richard. Um... So it's a combination of different factors, and and we are of course talking about a period of hundreds of years here. But um, I think it's it's very much worth highlighting that the the expansion and the endurance of Frankish political power wasn't just down to them you know having a stronger or more effective military over the centuries the Franks showed themselves to be very opportunistic and adaptive and very capable of gauging and exploiting existing systems of of social and 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 political power in Gaul for example instead of you know, completely demolishing and replacing the prior Roman systems of government, they they actually adopted that infrastructure for themselves. They they made sure to engage with the regional nobilities that were already there, and um, very importantly, they embraced Roman Christianity, which was you know, already the principal religion there. So there was a level of of, of continuity in these places uh, that 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 they ruled, uh, which made it much easier for people to, to accept and to even support the incoming Franks, um, as, as their new rulers. And in the centuries to follow, we see the Franks continue to engage very effectively in this, this combination of force and diplomacy in order to expand, uh, their influence across other parts of, of Western and, and Central Europe.
2: Uh, no, you've touched on this a bit in in your last answer but Connor O'Neill wants to know what was the relationship like between the Franks and the Gallo-Roman aristocracy uh, that still resided in that realm.
3: Yeah, uh so so the Franks would have uh taken control of most of Gaul by the uh, by the 6th century and and as I mentioned, uh the region mostly remained culturally Roman uh, with its local government and administration very much uh, kept intact and the Franks adopting specific elements of Roman society to retain that kind of, of continuity. Now, of course these two peoples wouldn't really have been you know complete strangers to each other to begin with. Uh, the Franks and the people of Gaul, had already lived next door to each other for for centuries, uh, and we know that that various Franks would have already been you know active inside the Roman Empire. So it's also this this mutual familiarity that allowed the the, the Gallo-Roman nobility to to really accept Frankish rule, and it, and it allowed uh, the Franks to adopt elements of this prior. Uh, uh, Gallo-Roman culture, so that a balance between the two could be found and and sustained during that 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 early period, Gallo-Roman elites were often able to remain in power on on a local level, but adhere to this 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 much more sort of overarching frankish kingship so there was always a kind of an interdependence between those those different levels um but if the 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 nobility of gaul hadn't accepted the situation to begin with uh there's a real chance that the frankish realm really would have never been able to to further expand its its power in the way that it that it did in the end
2: okay uh interesting question here from lana who wants to know how important were pre pre pre-existing trade routes to the frankish kingdom.
3: Yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks, Lana. So when the Franks. Uh, initially began to expand their influence into Gaul. We can see that the that the prior Roman networks of exchange were disrupted pretty heavily. There is a clear sort of archaeological break in the trade with Britain, for example, uh, in the early fifth century, and we, we we can see similar declines in trade uh, with the Mediterranean uh, and, and and other areas. But by the later fifth and and the sixth centuries we already start to see uh, a a revival of of long-distance trade in Gaul um, with with new links being developed across the North Sea and and into Eastern Europe and into the Mediterranean, uh, which in turn connected the Merovingians to to all these neighboring networks of, of commerce as well. So not only do we start to see Goods from the Frankish realm making their way into you know Britain and Scandinavia, um, for example, We can also identify uh, materials coming in from much further away, uh, like glass and 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 st- specific types of ceramics from the from the Mediterranean, for example. Um, and even uh, specific types of of beads and and garnets from as far away as as, as southern asia and 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 the Indian Ocean. So even though there was this this early deterioration of the prior Roman trade, we really shouldn't underestimate how deeply connected the Frankish realm would eventually become after that that initial period.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: They really had no small hand in in the map of Europe looking the way it does today. France is, of course, also named after them. And uh, we also have the German region of Franconia, uh, named after the Franks. And, and um, even the, the city of Frankfurt is named for the Franks, for example.
1: This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers.
2: There have been some fascinating finds that show that interconnectedness uh, recently, haven't there? It's, uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting topic. Right. Now, before we uh, move out of the Merovingian period, uh, just a couple more. Uh, a popular search engine query was, who was the most powerful Merovingian king? Can you can you assess that?
3: <laughs> um, oh, boy. Uh, there's a couple that might be up there. Um, but I, I think a, a safe bet is probably Clovis. Um, who was one of the very first Merovingian kings. Now, not only was he credited with uh, the unification of the Frankish people, uh, but he was also able to take control of most of the territories of Gaul by the end of his kingship, which would have been uh, in the early 5th century. He's also considered to be the first Frankish ruler to be baptized, which uh, opened the door to, to, to Christianity to take on this this far more uh, structured and, and formalized role in, in, in Frankish society. Now, following Clovis's death, uh, the Frankish kingdom was divided up between his heirs and, and, and their descendants after them. And that set, that really set the stage for, for countless, you know, conflicts between different Merovingian rulers. Um, and it's not really until the 600s that we really start to see a more united Merovingian kingship again under, uh, rulers like, uh, Clothar II and, and Dagobert I. Um, but even towards the end of that century, that political influence was increasingly overtaken by uh, the so-called uh, mayors of the palace, who were these uh, royal officials that now effectively wielded the power behind the throne. Uh, and it's, it's this position that would pave the way for uh, another dynasty, uh, the, the Carolingians, to gradually uh, assume control of the, uh, of the Frankish realm.
2: Well, that leads us on very nicely to the next popular search engine query, which is why did the Carolingians replace the Merovingians?
3: So the Carolingians formally replaced the Merovingian dynasty on the throne by the mid-8th century, when uh, a man called Pippin the Short became the first of the Carolingian kings. But but that that shift in power between those two dynasties didn't happen overnight, of course. Pippin's ancestors had been mayors of the palace for several generations now. That post, the mayor of the palace, was originally meant to just manage the royal household. Um, But as time went on, more and more um, responsibilities and duties were were added to that position, making it so authoritative that it effectively reduced the king himself uh, to little more than just, just a figurehead, really. Pippin's father for example was uh Charles Martel who you may be familiar with. Uh now Charles was never a king himself uh but he but he sure acted like one. Um he handed out lands, he went on powerful uh he went on 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 military campaigns and he and he put also he put down all of these these various rebellions. Um and he was so he was so influential in fact that he could effectively appoint uh, his own kings, which he did several times, and, and toward the end of his reign, um, he didn't even bother with that anymore. So as a result, the Frankish kingdom was without a king uh, for, uh, for six years uh, before a new one was installed, uh, who was uh, Childeric Third. So Pippin, who was Charles Martel's son, and now the new mayor of the palace, eventually sent word to the pope for his permission to, to oust Childeric. Um, and the Pope agreed to this. And, and that's how the last Merovingian king was uh, deposed in the year uh, 751, with Pippin taking his place as the first uh, Carolingian on the throne.
2: And that, that's, that was the end of the Merovingians. OK, right. Uh, <laughs> a, 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 another big question, and uh, introducing another big, uh, big figure in this story is who was Charlemagne and why was he important?
3: Charlemagne, or, or Charles the Great, uh, is far and away the, the most recognizable of, of, the, of all the Carolingian rulers. Um, his reign lasted for several decades, between the later 8th and the early 9th century, and it's, it's often considered to represent the pinnacle of, of Frankish political power in, in Europe. Um, he's uh, well known for his uh, military achievements Um The early decades of his kingship were marked by numerous uh, successful campaigns, which uh, greatly expanded the Frankish realm uh, into Saxony in the north, into Bavaria in the east, uh, Lombardy in the south, um, and, and, and so on. Um, he also presided over a wide variety of of social uh, and societal and and religious uh, reforms and 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 he's credited with greatly uh, stimulating scholarly and, and and artistic endeavor throughout uh, his 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 realm. And on top of that, he was also the first Frankish ruler to be crowned emperor. Which, was down, uh, which, which happened uh, uh, in Rome, and it was done by Pope Leo III on, on Christmas Day in the year uh, 800, which was very much sort of a deliberate callback to the days of, of imperial Rome. So this is when we really start talking about uh, a Frankish empire, a Carolingian empire, rather than just, you know, a Frankish kingdom or, or a Carolingian kingdom
2: okay so things have stepped up a gear by by the year 800 now uh a question here from um one of our regular Ever you want to know uh, uh podcast questioners. i really should find out who's behind this social media account uh, agro biodiverse thank you for your question quite a specific one were the paladins of charlemagne real and obviously you're gonna have to tell us who these paladins were that uh that we're talking about <laughs>
3: um yeah the paladins of, of charlemagne um I, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to be uh, a little bit of, 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 a, of a killjoy here. Um, Charlemagne's paladins are unfortunately uh, a later literary invention. So medieval romance traditions, especially the uh, the so-called chanson de geste, uh, feature these, these legendary stories about... Early medieval Frankia, um, they they commonly contain Charlemagne as a as a as a prominent character, and 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 they talk about you know his virtuous deeds and his his conquests and his adventures. And in these stories, we often see him surrounded by this group of twelve loyal chivalric knights called paladins. Twelve, of course, being the number of the apostles following Christ. Um, you know, all very deliberately done. And 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 we can directly compare the role of these paladins uh, to those of the knights of the Round Table that we see in in the Arthurian uh, cycle. Now we know that uh, the historical Charlemagne did have uh, all sorts of you know close associates and retainers and 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 and, and, and people like that. But they would have been nothing like the, the paladins that are depicted in these, these romances, uh, which, which are, as far as we can tell, a, a complete uh, fiction, unfortunately.
2: That's a shame. I remember paladins from uh, from playing Dungeons and Dragons many years ago. Paladins were always uh, a, a key thing there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, okay, let's move on. Uh, we've got a question here from uh, Istrad History, uh, I presume, a Welsh correspondent um, who wants to know: Were the nicknames given to the Carolingian rulers ever ironic, or were they always sort of? exact fact so you've mentioned uh pip in the short for instance uh there with the, these 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 rulers who have the
3: uh interesting uh nicknames what's what's the story there it's worth pointing out that that uh, th- I think before we before we get into it that many of these nicknames aren't actually from the Carolingian period itself but they were only later applied to many of these rulers uh, that we that we're talking about. So, yeah, Pippin the Short, for example, is only first named as being Short uh a few hundred years after his death, which makes it very difficult to verify whether he was actually short or not. But some of these uh kind of epithets may have been coined during the actual period itself. And I, I think that a good place to start um, is 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 not so much Pippin the Short, but probably King uh, Charles the Bald. Now, Charles the Bald was a grandson of, of, of Charlemagne. And, and even though uh, the earliest written evidence for his nickname, the Bald, is, is from the mid-10th century, uh, it may already have been in use during his lifetime. Now, we don't have any you know, particularly strong evidence to suggest that Charles was actually bald. Um, we, we do have a number of contemporary descriptions and depictions uh, of him, but he seems to have hair on his head in all of those. Uh, so it's it's been suggested that the term may have in fact been used ironically, um, and that he was actually, you know, really hairy, not, you know, not bald at all. So There are also theories that perhaps it could have been applied in a metaphorical sense, uh, that the baldness, you know, could have referred to maybe his piety, you know, like a tonsured monk, uh, for example, or that it may have referred to him uh, lacking uh, an inheritance at first, or that it was really that he that it was simply because he was a really you know ineffective ruler um, and 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 maybe it could have been used even as a, as a type of an emasculating term but there's there's really no strong evidence that you know supports or discredits any of these theories in in particular and 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 we have you know similar discussions for you know uh, other rulers like King Charles the simple and Louis the stammerer and 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 various other people and uh unfortunately. At the moment, all we can really do is sort of speculate when it comes to comes to these kinds of nicknames.
2: But the nicknames do at least uh, make it easier to remember who's who, don't they? So that's, that's Oh, helpful.
3: for sure. Yeah, yeah. Everyone is called Charles or Louis in those days. So
2: <laughs> Okay, so let's, so let's move on to another question which involves one of these uh, nicknamed monarchs. This is from Suzanne Attar who wants to know, could Louis the pious have done more during his lifetime to prevent the eventual disintegration of the Carolingian Empire?
3: Yeah. Uh thanks Susan. This is one of those uh one of those 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 great sort of what if questions. So uh just to provide a little bit of background here um in the Frankish world it, it wasn't yet established practice for the oldest child to 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 automatically inherit uh, the entire kingdom. Instead, a territory would have to be equally divided among the legitimate sons of a king, which the Merovingians did regularly, for example. Now, Louis the Pious was the only surviving legitimate son of Charlemagne, and he therefore was his only heir. So he received the entirety of the Frankish realm in 814. So, you know, no questions asked. But Louis himself had multiple legitimate heirs of his own, and they repeatedly clashed with each other and with Louis over their uh, royal inheritance. Um, And when Louis eventually died in the year 840, uh, a, a civil war uh, eventually broke out and, and saw the Carolingian Empire carved up into these three independent kingdoms. Now, in hindsight, could Louis have done more during his lifetime to prevent that from happening? Uh, I would say probably not. He already had many of his uh, his extended family members exiled or, or forced into monasteries to, to prevent any claims from them and Louis was well aware that the empire would be partitioned among his children. Um, in fact, he, he kind of counted on it because he formalized that arrangement in a series uh, of decrees, uh, but with the express intent that peace would be maintained between those separate kingdoms and that the empire as a whole would remain intact. Uh, now, of course things didn't quite work out that way in the end but uh I think the straw that really broke the camel's back there is the fact that he later fathered another legitimate son with his second wife uh which caused the other sons who weren't you know all that keen to share that that inheritance to to rebel you know against him so so I think institutionally there wasn't, you know, all that much he could have done to prevent the partition of his realm. Uh, but if, you know, if anything, I suppose, you know, he, he could have had fewer children. You know, that would have made the inheritance much, much less contentious. But, you know, hindsight is 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 really twenty twenty on these things.
2: Um, you, you might uh, come on to this later, but can you just remind us what the free kingdoms were that uh, that uh, devolved from Louis', um, Louis reign?
3: Yes, so, uh, when Louis, uh, Louis had three sons who eventually uh, inherited uh, parts of his great empire, the Western Frankish kingdom went to Charles the Bald, uh, the Middle Frankish kingdom, which uh, stretched all the way from uh, the Low Countries to Northern Italy, uh, went to Lothar. And the Eastern Kingdom went to uh, a man called Louis the German. So these were the surviving, eventually the surviving sons of, of Louis the Pious.
2: And uh, it's, it's probably worth mentioning here, just as an aside, that we talked about this period um, in a previous podcast that you and I did, uh, looking at the Viking influence in Frank here. And, and you sort of, you, you referenced how the the civil war and the, and the difficulties that uh, followed Louis's reign perhaps uh uh, allow some opportunities for, for Vikings to, to take a, a role in the story. So if anyone's interested in that, then look back through through the archive to, to find the uh, Vikings in Frankia episode, which is a, a good one as well.
3: Yes, yes. Apologies for the lack of Vikings in in this episode.
2: (laughs) Um, Right. Uh, Stephen Evans wants to know, to what extent did the creation of Lofaringia facilitate centuries of conflict in these lands or were structural geographic factors more significant? So, So that sort of follows on from the previous question, I guess, a bit.
3: Yeah um uh thanks thanks very much uh, Stephen uh this uh, this is a huge question um and I think you could probably fill an entire podcast series just on Lotharingia, but I'll 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 really try my best. Um, so Lotharingia is is one of the one of these successor kingdoms to follow the partition of of the Carolingian Empire during uh, the mid ninth century, and it was you know named for its king uh, Lothar, and it included uh, large sections of what is now the Low Countries, Western Germany, and 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 northeastern France. So this uh, was so we're talking about Lothar II here, who was already the son of the first Lothar. Who I mentioned. So this is already a smaller, uh, a smaller kingdom at this point, and uh, but we're talking uh, about a region that you know, so in in some ways still, uh, still exists because the Lorraine region in France takes its name uh, from from Lotharingia. So this this region was very important to the Franks uh politically because it was home to uh all sorts of centers of royal power like uh, like Aachen and Metz economically because it was a highly productive region due to its uh it had it had very productive uh, agricultural estates and 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 there was all sorts of goods production but it was also bounded by these rivers uh like the Rhine and the Meuse which served as, as these major commercial corridors within the Frankish realm and, 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 and uh, all the way down to the, to the North Sea area. But also symbolically, because it represented the Frankish heartlands where the, where the, where the Franks as a people originated. So it had a lot of, of prestige attached to it in, in that sense as well. And it's, it's these combined considerations that would make Lotharingia a, a very contested region for, for a long period of time. But even though those factors would have been, you know, it, they would have absolutely been bound up with the creation of the Lotharingian kingdom in the ninth century, they weren't necessarily a result of it, I think, because those elements were there regardless. The Lotharingian kingdom itself wasn't, even around for that long, relatively speaking, um, it would have already really ceased to exist by the 10th century. But the region, nevertheless, you know, remained deeply, deeply important and disputed for for the centuries uh, to follow.
2: I'd, I'd love to do a follow up podcast with you on Leferingia. Let's uh, let's chat
3: about that <laughs> after this let's, one. Let's let's do it.
2: Um, okay, uh, a, a couple more specifically on the on the Carolingians. A um, uh, uh, popular search engine query: Who was the last Carolingian king?
3: Oh, uh, that would be uh, Louis V, who is considered to be the last Carolingian ruler of Western Francia. Uh, Now, Louis V was only in power for a relatively uh, short period of time um, before he was killed um, in a hunting accident in the year 987.
2: So uh, following on from that uh, uh, should be fairly simple to answer then. How long did the Carolingian dynasty last? That's another search
3: engine query. So... If we uh, if we start the, the the royal lineage of the Carolingians with Pippin the Short in 751 and we end it with uh, Louis the Fifth in in 987, uh, that's well over you know two centuries during most of which one Carolingian ruler or another was on a throne you know somewhere in in the Frankish realm. So we can really sort of you know we 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 can we can call that that those 200 years uh you know the carolingian period really
2: perfect okay and then uh moving out of the uh, of the of the carolingian period uh a question here about uh, the, the aftermath are the french descended from the franks or uh, to ask in another way how did the franks become french and then there's a sort of a linguistic question that uh, is linked to it which is when did they uh, come from change from being germanic franks to to romance french
3: Okay, um, so present day France and the French do uh, both take their name from the Franks and from from Francia as a territory. But um, as we've seen, Francia itself would have been you know much bigger than 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 present day France. When the Frankish realm was broken up into separate kingdoms during the ninth century, only one of those kingdoms, Western Francia, would would eventually uh, turn into what's now France. Um, but as a region, Western Francia would have already been, you know, a predominantly Romance-speaking area, not a Germanic one. So ironically, even though the French language is named after the Franks, it's not actually a descendant of the Frankish language. And so I think it's it's not really accurate to say that the Germanic Franks would have turned into the Romance French. Um I mean, sure, that there were many Franks living in Gaul that would have adopted, you know, that language and that culture. Uh, but the Franks still living in the Germanic-speaking areas of Francia would have, you know, they really would have had no need to, to do so. So uh, I think, long story short there, um, yes, parts of Francia did eventually turn into France. Uh, but other parts of Francia also became what is now Germany and Belgium and the Netherlands and, and, and Switzerland and, 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 and other places. So there, there never really was this, this perfect continuity from one to the other. And, and, you know, to make matters worse as well, all of this, of course, happened gradually over a period of, of several centuries. And there unfortunately isn't, you know, really a single date or a single event that we can really pin on these on these kinds of developments.
2: Okay, uh, great stuff. So last question, um, uh, a b- bit of fun from Andy Croy, who wants to know, what did the Franks ever do for us? <laughs>
3: um, uh, thanks, Andy. Uh, quite a lot, actually. So uh, geographically, as, as we've seen, they, had, they really had no small hand in the, in the map of Europe looking the way it does today. France is, of course, also named after them, and uh, we also have the German region of Franconia, uh, named after the Franks, and and um, even the the city of Frankfurt is named for the Franks, for example. Linguistically, there's also a wide variety of Frankish words that have made their way into English, either you know through French or through Dutch, uh, and they 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 include words like um, like heron and bacon and guardian and roast and 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 afraid and shock and garage. So these are very functional, everyday words, and and of course uh, the word Frank itself as well. But I think just as importantly, Frankish societies have also left quite a significant legacy in a more sort of intangible way. They they produced this 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 massive amount of of, of scholarship, of philosophy, of art, uh, legislation, um, and they and they stimulated economic growth and 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 urban development. And it's it's the Frankish intellectual climate, the the, the administration and and the court culture and the, and the diplomacy that often seems to have served as this this influence or or model for 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 other cultures and societies to to adapt or emulate both both at the time itself and and, and later on. So even though the Franks may not necessarily be the first peoples that come to mind when we think about, you know, early medieval heritage, we really shouldn't underestimate sort of the vast influence they have had uh, and in many ways continue to have uh, on, on, on our society for, for better or uh, for worse, really. Because sadly, just like the Vikings, um, Frankish history also continues to be appropriated by by um you know extremist and and violent groups uh, on on the far right uh, who have adopted quite distorted views of, of this type of history and 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 often sort of you know characterize frankish societies as having been you know ethnically and culturally and and, and racially homogenous uh, and and I you know this is a, this is a complete fabrication the frankish world was marked if anything by its diversity and its complexity of, of peoples and identities. And it's, it's really essential that we, you know, can always continue to emphasize that, uh, and, and really challenge these sort of willful misinterpretations of the evidence, uh, whenever, whenever they appear.
2: Well, hopefully, uh, anyone listening to this podcast will have got a sense of the complexity and diversity. Though, of course, we've only had uh, less than an hour to, to to spin through several centuries and a lot of time and space there. So, um, uh, so, but, uh, but, but it's been fun. Thank you very much, Christine. That's that's really helped. I think uh, give us an introduction to the period and the subject, and
3: hopefully, listeners will take a lot from it. Thanks, thanks very much, Dave. Great to be with you.
0: That was Dr. Christian Coymans of the University of Liverpool. His latest book, Monarchs and Hydrax, The Conceptual Development of Viking Activity Across the Frankish Realm, is out now, published by Routledge. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.